Good evening, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've ever had it while driving in unfamiliar territory. Sometimes you pass by a church and you see the sign out front, or you see it's kind of dilapidated, or you see some flag flying there stationed in front of it, and you think, what happened here? What happened to this church? We were uh, in Williamsburg, Virginia on our vacation in uh, end of August, beginning, in, beginning of September, and we were walking through historic Williamsburg by one of these very, very old churches, perhaps one of the oldest ones in our continent, certainly certainly a couple hundred years old. And outside the church, they're having some service. Um, I remember hearing a little bit of what was said. There's a lady in vestments, and what she was saying sounded kind of like a cross between yoga and self-help stuff that you might read in a self-help book. And I just felt a little bit repulsed, honestly, nauseous. And that thought came to my mind, what happened here? What happened here? How could this church, this historic church, become like this over time? Perhaps, you know, I think of some of the United Churches in our country, perhaps they used to be Presbyterian, Reformed churches preaching the same gospel that we preached, and they're very different today. What happened? And I think one of the answers Scripture would give to us is that the church stopped contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In the past um, months when I've preached, we've looked at some of the shorter books of the Bible, 2nd John, 3rd John, uh, last time we looked at Obadiah, all these three books have only one chapter, and perhaps because of their brevity, they're a little bit more neglected. They're not on our radar as much. One other book in the New Testament of the five one-chapter books of the Bible is the book of Jude. And some of the commentators I read, they said this is probably the most neglected book of the New Testament. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how familiar you are with Jude, but we're going to look at Jude this evening. And and Jude's passion, Jude's heart for the church that he's writing to is that they would not cease to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is well aware of moral and theological deterioration in the church and how destructive that could be. And he appeals to them. This is his appeal. That they would contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If we tolerate sin or we're silent about error, We stop caring about the preservation of the gospel. Over time, the church can spiral downhill 
into heresy, into immorality, and into destruction. And so Jude, uh, I'm going to work through the letter really in, in two parts, only one part this evening. And Jude begins with a lengthy warning. Here's his warning. I'll summarize it for you. Distorting grace and denying God in pursuit of debauchery has damning consequences. Distorting grace and denying God in pursuit of debauchery has damning consequences. That's Jude's warning at the beginning of the letter. We'll look at that this evening. And at the end of the letter, he has uh, an admonition. So what, how do we contend for this faith once for all delivered to the saints? We'll look at the warning this evening. Let's pray once more, and then I'll read this portion of the letter, and we will look at it together. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word, and it is a, a passage which is heavy. It is a passage which could even be confusing, and it is a passage which nonetheless is so important for the church in our world today and in all ages. We, Lord, ask that you would help us to understand your holy word that we would come with humble hearts, that we would come to your word, submitting to you as our master in heaven, and that we would trust you, that we would understand rightly the grace offered to us through Jesus Christ, grace which forgives and grace which transforms. And Lord, we pray that even this morning you might work to bring the message of the gospel afresh to us and transform our lives for any who have yet to believe who are here tonight. Lord, wake them up to their sin and wake them up to their need and may they come humbly to you, confessing you as both Savior and Lord and finding grace that redeems from all their sin. And so, Lord, I pray for your help, that your spirit might fill me and that I would rightly handle your word this evening, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A.J. read before a parallel passage. Peter, uh, it seems, uses Jude uh, in his own letter for his own purposes. But we'll read the first um, 16 verses of Jude's letter this evening. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, Shepherds feeding themselves, watered as clouds, swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Amen. This is God's Word. This is what we shall consider this evening. It's kind of hard to know where to divide up Jude. I definitely didn't want to do the whole thing at once because as you can see, there is a lot going on in this small passage of Scripture, and some confusing things too. And so I'm hoping not to get caught in the weeds. I'm hoping to uh, get the main point across, and yet nonetheless, I'm not going to ignore um, some of the difficulties along the way altogether, but we're going to try to keep the main thing the main thing. So who is Jude? Maybe you're unfamiliar with this book, Jude, he identifies himself as a servant, or you might even say a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now Jude is kind of just the English version of uh, Judas, which is Greek, or Judah, which is Hebrew. 
And uh, this name is a very common name of the time. Of course, there's Judas Iscariot. Well, it's not him, obviously. Um, and um, there's another one of Jesus' 12 disciples named Jude. And his father's name was James. So it's almost certainly not him either. And there's other Judes, like the companion of Silas in Acts chapter 15, who delivers a letter to the churches. Well, it's probably not him either. Jude is almost certainly, as it says, the brother of James, and this James being, as was mentioned this morning, James the Just, the brother of Jesus. And so what's uh, fascinating to me is that this Jude, brother of James, who would have then also been brother of Jesus, or half-brother if you want to be technical, because Mary was, of course, uh, a virgin when she gave birth to our Lord. Jude was the brother of Jesus, but he doesn't identify himself as a brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the brother of James, servant or slave of Jesus. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? Anybody here have a brother? Yeah, you you kids, you've got brothers. I've got a brother. Would you ever call your brother Lord? Master? I don't think so. I don't think so. Jude says he is a slave of Jesus Christ, his own biological brother. That's astounding, isn't it? Well, this Jude... Uh, we know only a little bit from the rest of the New Testament about him. What we know is that along with James and the other two brothers, they rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry. In fact, in John 7, the brothers get together. They probably know, like Jesus does, that people are looking to kill him pretty openly in Judea. And they say to him, Hey, why are you hiding? Why don't you go down to Judea? What type of thing is that for a brother to say? They realize he's gaining prominence. He's wanted dead in Judea. And they tell him, why don't you stop hiding and go back to Judea? Why are you you just staying here? Well, Jesus doesn't listen to them immediately. But anyways, that was their attitude toward Jesus, at least earlier on in his earthly ministry. But what we are told later on is that they are present in Acts chapter 1 during the prayer meeting before Pentecost. Something had changed along the way, and James most prominently, but also Jude and the other brothers became preachers, became even recognized as apostles, not of the twelve, but but James is called an apostle, and the other brothers are said to be itinerant preachers among that apostolic group. They're said to have been married. And, um, and here we have Jude, brother of Jesus, brother of James, writing to us this letter. So that's James. And he has a posture of humility toward the Lord. I think that is a, a good proof, a good um, reminder of how our posture should be towards Christ. He is our master. He is our God. And if Jude would speak in this way, so should we. Well, Jude 
has a concern for the church. And we're going to work through the letter uh, in five parts in, in the two sermons, but we're going to look at the first four parts even just today. The explanation of his concern. An example to condemn. An examination of a character. And lastly today, the execution of condemnation. And Lord willing, in November, we'll look at his exhortation to the church as well. And how to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But he begins by explaining his letter in verses 3 and 4. He says he's eager to write about the common salvation, but he finds something else necessary. And it's not that he's not going to write about salvation. It's not that he's not going to write um, in a sense about this, but he's not going to do so as positively as he might like. Be nice to marvel together in common salvation to rejoice together in that, but there is a matter that needs to be addressed, and that is the faith, Christian message, the gospel of Christ Jesus is at stake. It is being undermined by folks who have slipped into this church or group of churches, and there is only one gospel. He says there's once for all delivered to the saints. There is one gospel. It's not whatever you want it to be. It's not your opinion or my opinion or, uh, well, they're a, different, um, they're a different group and so we'll, you know, we'll leave them alone. They have their own views. No, he's concerned because there is one gospel and it is being undermined and salvation is on the line. And people are heading toward destruction. And so he warns them. That's his purpose in this letter. An explanation of concern we see in the first two uh, verses there of the main section, verse 3 and 4. So it's not a pleasant subject. He says certain people have crept in unnoticed. And he describes these people in four ways. And we'll see him expand on this throughout the rest of the letter. The first way he describes them is that they're designated for condemnation. And designated is actually more literally uh, forewritten or written ahead of time, pre-written. These are people who have, under the sovereignty of God, been designated for condemnation and God has predicted this ahead of time in His Holy Word. The second way he describes them is this ungodly, ungodly people. And you, if you were paying attention during that Enoch prophecy later on, the word ungodly is used over and over and over and over again, so you shouldn't be able to miss it. That is the main way he describes them. Godless, ungodly. And then third, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Okay, so... They're using God's grace as an excuse for sin. That's huge concern of what's going on here and how the gospel is being undermined. And in doing so, fourthly, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. If Christ is Master, that changes how we live our lives. But if we start to take God's grace 
and twist it and say, well, God's gracious, so I'm going to live like this. I'm going to indulge in this because God will forgive me after all. We distort His grace and we deny Christ's lordship. So those are, those are His concerns. That's the explanation of His concern in these first couple of verses. And He's going to unpack that here with uh, a lengthy warning that comes really from verse 5 all the way through 16 at the end of what we'll look at today. And he wraps it up in those last verses with an admonition to the church, an exhortation. So we've seen his explanation of his concern, and now we see examples that he condemns. Examples. He, he wants to get them thinking rightly again. He wants, them to, wants to bring them back to God's Word and to see just the seriousness of the peril that the church might be in if they embrace the sort of morality or immorality, rather, of these uh, imposters and the teaching, perhaps, that comes with it. Though I will say, Jude does not call them false teachers as, as Peter would. He doesn't even really talk about their teaching. His main focus is on their actions, their conduct, their character. And it's their character, I think, which is how they're denying the Lord. They're, they're twisting God's grace. I suppose you might say that's teaching. They're twisting God's grace into sensuality so that they can live as they would want to live. And in doing so, they deny the Lord. So we see him provide three examples to reorient their thinking. Examples from the Old Testament in verses 5 through 8. The first example is the Exodus. Very common. We all know about the Exodus. The most important salvation act in the Old Testament for his people. Front and center in the minds of the Jewish people. And he says, I want to remind you about the Exodus. Remember this. God saved his people from Egypt. But what happened later? They disbelieved. They rebelled. He was bringing them through the wilderness. They got close to the promised land. They have an opportunity to enter the promised land. They send in their spies. And ten of the twelve spies come back. And they say, we can't do it. The people are too strong. We can't make it. They doubt the promise of God. He has promised them this land. They disbelieve. And they convince the rest of the people to disbelieve with them. And at other points in the wilderness, they grumble against God. They say, we want to go back to Egypt. It was better there for us. Where is God taking us? He's going to kill us. They turn to idols. They turn to immorality with the Midianites. They turn to... Ingratitude, grumbling against God again and again, rebelling against Moses, his appointed leader. And so these people are destroyed by the Lord in the wilderness. They do not enter the promised land. And so he says, remember. Remember that. Why would he say that? Well, because sometimes folks who appear to be saved or among the community of faith disbelieve 
and they forsake the Lord and they want to go back to their former sin, their former slavery. They want to return to it. And they give themselves over to immorality. And God's saying here through Jude, destruction is coming for those people. Be warned. Some might say, oh, you know, once saved, always saved. But you need to understand that if God saves someone, He will preserve them to the end. If they go back to their sin, like as we read in Peter, a pig to the mire, a dog to its vomit, there is nothing but destruction. The only Savior is Christ Jesus. There is none else who can save. And so there's a warning from the Exodus that those who disbelieve were destroyed. There's a warning, secondly, from the flood. And in saying that, I'm showing my hand and how I interpret this. It says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's verse 6. Peter expands a little bit more. He talks about Noah right afterwards. And the angels, who I believe he's referring to, are the, what are called the, the sons of men in the beginning of Genesis 6. Genesis 6, the sons of men um, are filled with lust. Sorry, the sons of God, excuse me. The sons of God in Genesis 6 are filled with lust for the daughters of men. And they pursue them. And they marry them. And God disapproves. And He brings judgment through the flood. And so there's some debate about who are these sons of God. Some people would say they're kings. Some people would say they're from the line of Seth, the righteous line, and the daughters of men are uh, from a, a wicked line. And there's this intermarriage there. But the historical Jewish interpretation, which Jude is well familiar with, and... Um, and which has been a common interpretation among Christians as well, is that these sons of God are fallen angels who rebel against the Lord. Kind of bizarre, admittedly. It's not something, of course, we see today. And that's because God has brought judgment upon these fallen angels. He condemned them, as it says, to eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And um, he goes on to say, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., they pursued um, unnatural desire. Well, there's a commonality there, isn't there? Because if you don't interpret it that way, as I just did, there is no just as. See, there is a commonality between what I just explained from Genesis 6 and what happens later with Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a pursuit of deviant sensuality. Angels with human beings. And as you're well familiar with the Sodom and Gomorrah, unnatural desire, deviant sensuality that is pursued. And so there's this just as in verse 7. And, um, and this is also meant to be applicable to the 
churches or church that Jude's writing to because this is the sort of thing that these imposters are trying to justify some sort of sensuality. They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality, he says, and he wants to remind the church this leads to destruction. Destruction will follow, just as with the angels, just as with Sodom and Gomorrah. Destruction will follow. God will judge. Sodom and Gomorrah were well familiar with that story. They pursued unnatural desire. You know, today you'll hear people try to reinterpret and re-explain that whole story and say, well, the people there were just inhospitable. And that's why God brought judgment. Let me tell you, they weren't just being bad hosts, okay? Jude makes that abundantly clear. And it's not just that they didn't ask consent either. They pursued, it says, unnatural desire. And God brought fiery judgment from heaven. Fire and brimstone turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt when she looked back. And it says, they serve as an example. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. See, this is a a foreshadowing, a type of the judgment which is to come. It's an example to the church even today. And I find it ironic that of the flood and of this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, The world has taken this picture of God's mercy in the rainbow and distorted it for sensuality. Perverted the grace of God into sensuality when really the image that God's people and the world is left with after Sodom and Gomorrah is a wasteland of destruction, which remains there even to this day. You know, the Dead Sea is filled with salt. Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. It's filled with salt so much that life cannot dwell there. It's dead. It's a wasteland. And yet Scripture tells us it used to be like the Garden of Eden. And now, how is it? Even millennia later on, that is the picture of a judgment, a fiery judgment which is to come, and a symbol of what this sensuality, a life of sensuality leads to. And so Jude provides these three historical examples to try to remind the churches, remind God's people, hold on a second, understand what's going on here. They're taking God's grace and they're using it as an excuse for sin And they're denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's leading them toward damnation. It's leading them toward destruction. They're not Christians. This is uh, heavy stuff. Well, it continues on. The warning continues on, but he changes from these examples into a more explicit examination of the character of these imposters from verse 8 through 13. So we've seen an explanation of his concern. We've seen an example or examples 
which are condemned. And thirdly, we look at an examination of character from verses 8 through 13. Somehow, these people have gone unnoticed. He said that at the beginning. How in the world could they have gone unnoticed? Maybe that's baffling to you, but they're probably more uh, religious than you might first expect reading those last verses. See, these people, he says, they're relying on their dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. So these are people who speak in religious terms, even in charismatic terms about visions from God and about angels and demons. And they, in their arrogance, it seems, slander demonic authorities, demonic um, forces. And they may sound to some like they're spiritual people. They're religious people. They're maybe even... Uh, leaders or teachers. And what Jude is trying to expose here is their immoral character, their ungodly character. And so he shows that their authority is not God's word. It's their own dreams. Okay? And, um, you know, throughout history, this has ironically been a pretty significant source of authority for some major religions. Islam, Mormonism, Where do they put their authority? Dreams. Dreams of Muhammad. Dreams of Joseph Smith. And uh, quite frankly, even within the charismatic movement, authority put in dreams contrary to Scripture is leading people into error, into immorality. We cannot put dreams above Scripture, no matter how spiritual it might seem. And and their whole purpose, of course, is to justify their defiling of the flesh, he says. They reject authority, God's authority, the authority of the apostles and the teaching of the gospel. And he says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, you might think glorious ones, oh, that's... Who are the glorious ones? Well, certainly it seems to me they're angels. But I would even think that given his example that comes next, that they might even be fallen angels, demons. Because the example he uses is uh, of Michael's own uh, contention with the devil and how Michael would not blaspheme the devil. He would not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil. Rather, he says, the Lord rebuke you. And so if his example is that Michael won't blaspheme the devil, then it seems these these people are probably in uh, in arrogance and presumption speaking some sort of slanderous or insulting um, and and arrogant words toward demonic forces. Which is is odd, is bizarre, and yet I've, I've seen the same thing happen in our own day. And, you know, he uses a bit of a bizarre example here because he quotes from uh, a source outside the Bible, which is probably uh, um, literature called the Assumption of Moses. Okay, we don't even have it anymore. 
And there's another passage he quotes later on from First Enoch. And, and you know, some of these things kind of trip people up. I'm not going to get into the weeds here, but I will say this. He's quoting outside the Bible. He knows he's quoting outside the Bible. His audience knows he's quoting outside the Bible. And there's no... It's, it's not as weird as we might think. Because even this morning, say, Pastor Carl quoted outside the Bible, he quoted a hymn. Now, none of us jump to the conclusion that he thought that hymn was inspired scripture. Right? We all know that it's just a hymn. And yet, his point was, that line from the hymn, yeah, that's true. That's true. While Jude's doing the same sort of thing here. He's quoting from a couple different other sources that Jewish people would have been familiar with, and he's saying, you know what they said there? That's true, and it's true for this situation. And I'm going to bring it in here because it's true for what I'm talking about. And, um, and because now it is contained in Scripture, what he's written is inspired, but that's not to say that the passage or the literature that he quoted is, is by him considered to be inspired Scripture. So I hope what I just said makes sense. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail any further. But uh, anyways, he quotes this passage, and it's a bizarre situation that's not included in Scripture, but the whole point is this. If Michael won't rebuke the devil with a slanderous, blasphemous word, you should not either speak toward authority with a slanderous, blasphemous word. It's wrong. Even... The devil seems kind of weird because we think, well, the devil's evil. Why would, we, why, would, why would it be wrong to speak against him? Well, I mean, in a sense, you know, we can recognize the, the devil as the arch, arch enemy of the faith and as a deceiver of the world. But we should not go beyond our place. Nonetheless, it is God who judges. It is not for us to slander and insult anyone. And whether that's the devil or whether that's a politician or whether that is a professor or whether that is a pastor, it is not for us to despise authority or slander. And so that's his, that's his point here. These people are given to rejection of authority and slander. So he moves on. He, he speaks of them not in, not in heavenly terms, but he says they're acting more like animals here. They're acting according to their instincts. They're being unreasonable. Woe to them. Woe to them for this. And further, he, he quickly goes through three more examples from the Old Testament. And I'll just mention briefly each of them. I'd love to go into more detail, but we just don't have time. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain hated his brother and murdered him because he was righteous. Balaam was a false prophet hired to curse God's people. He had greedy motives, even though the Lord rebuked him through the mouth of a donkey and the Lord required him to bless his people. The, the false prophet Balaam had false motives of greed and later on tried to lead God's people into immorality with the Midianites, and he did, and eventually Balaam was destroyed. And then lastly, thirdly, Korah. Korah was from the tribe of Levi, and he organized a rebellion against Moses. And the earth opened up and swallowed him. 
when God brought judgment down upon. So we have three men from the Old Testament. We had three examples earlier of God's judgment in history. I have three men mentioned here as well, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And we have a picture then of those who are filled with hate, those who are rebellious, those who are greedy, those who are leading people into immorality. That's the picture that we gained in thinking about these examples. And then he goes through a bunch of metaphors. They're hidden reefs at your love feasts. Love feast is simply a reference to the Lord's Supper and a hidden reef. Think of a ship going close to shore. What is the most dangerous thing for a ship that's nearing shore? Well, it's a reef that it can't see. It runs up into that reef. It destroys the ship. So he's saying that they're, they're um, going to destroy the church by being hidden among the saints and present there at their Lord's Supper. They're feasting without fear as they indulge in immorality in their own lives and then they come for the Lord's Supper with unrepentant hearts, perverting the grace of God. Shepherds feeding themselves. A lot of these are actually allusions to the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel, in the Proverbs, and so on. Um, and, and shepherds here is really an indication that these people may well have had uh, some sort of leadership responsibility. They're using that, however, for their own selfish gains. Waterless clouds swept along by the wind. In an arid country, seeing clouds coming in to bring rain for the crops, that is something you're longing for. And if those clouds come overhead, and then they pass by, and there's no rain, what a disappointment. And so these folks promise much and deliver little. Another metaphor, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They bear no fruit in their lives because they're dead and they will be uprooted. So they're twice dead. See, those who in their lives are devoid of the Spirit bear no fruit and are spiritually dead and will be headed toward the second death. Wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, he says. And, uh, you know, some of this you wonder, what exactly is he trying to point out here? Probably simply that there is, there is a disorder in them and that their actions are repulsive. Just as the, you ever walk along the beach and you see that foam, you get that foam on your body, that's kind of nasty, isn't it? You get that in your mouth when you're swimming, you come up from the water and there's this foam on you. Disgusting. That's how these people are with their actions. It's gross. The sensuality is gross. And lastly, he says an illustration from the night sky. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They don't follow along with the rest of the constellations as the seasons pass. The stars, or some might even say these are actually planets, they're wandering, they're, they're on their own, they're straying. And as they stray, 
they stray into darkness forever, just like the demons that the Lord judged in the days of Noah. So we have a long examination of their character in those verses, and in some ways perplexing, but I think Jude has painted a picture for us now of exactly the type of people that he's dealing with, the impostors who have come into the Christian community or communities that he's writing to, and now he moves to speak about the execution of God's judgment from verses 14 through 16 at the end of what we'll look at today. He says, it was, about, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. Christ is coming. That's the final word regarding the actions of these people. God has judged in the past. This is what they're doing. Christ is coming in judgment. He will come with His holy angels and execute judgment. And again, He brings this word up over and over and over. Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the ungodliness of these people, both in word and deed, will be brought into judgment. Their rebellion against the Lord will be brought into judgment when Christ returns. So this is a heavy warning, isn't it? heavy warning, and he concludes with one more list describing their character. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing advantage to gain, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So these are the sorts of people who have come into the church, and he's concerned they're perverting the grace of God for sensuality. They're denying the Master, Jesus Christ. It's destructive. And they've gone unnoticed. There has not been any recognition of that destruction that might come. And Jude's concerned because if this goes without being addressed... If no one contends for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, immorality will become commonplace. The unconverted will introduce destructive heresies, as Peter says. And the church will eventually have its light taken away, as Jesus speaks about in the book of Revelation. Become just a shell of what it once was. So we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's, that's why he spends all this time speaking about the actions and the character and the historical examples from the Old Testament. 
He wants us to see just how important it is for us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because if we don't, there is nothing but judgment for all. There is nothing but doom. Because our sins, if we pervert God's grace, our sins remain upon us. See, the thing is, you might say that um, these people might say, well, you know, God's grace means that, you know, I could leave my spouse in pursuit of an affair. Or God's grace means that I can indulge in watching whatever I want, whenever I want, on the TV, on the internet. I've heard even people say, well, I'll have an abortion, God will forgive me later. All sorts of things are justified by, well, God is gracious. God will forgive me. I'm going to do it anyways because God is gracious. That is a perversion of His grace. And here's how. See, God is not simply gracious to remove the guilt of our sin. He is. But God is likewise gracious toward His people to free them from the grip of their sin. If you are not freed from slavery to sin, if you continue to indulge in sin, you can't presume upon God's grace to forgive you of your guilt. See, there is no faith without repentance. There is no conversion without regeneration. There is no salvation without submission to the Lord. There is no Savior without having Christ likewise as your Lord. Confession of the New Testament is Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that He's raised from the dead, be saved. Scripture says, these folks are denying their only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so that's why it's so important we don't distort God's grace. I had a, uh, someone I once worked with, and this is the exact thing, and I'm sure you've come across this too, the exact thing that he is doing. He is um, smoking marijuana, he's um, in, engaging in fornication and other things. And he said, well, you know, God will forgive me. I'm just, you know, living my life. I believe in God. I'm a Christian. And I said to him, look, God doesn't just simply save us from the condemnation of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. If you're saved from the condemnation of sin, you're saved from the power of sin. You don't want to live like that anymore. If you really understand what Christ did for you on the cross, that you've been forgiven, you'll want to love Him and obey Him out of love. That's what it means to be born again. And so this gentleman was perverting the grace of God. You will hear things like that, brothers and sisters, and we must know how to respond. And I'll say as well, you know, we'll talk more about the end of the passage um, in, in November but, and, um, and what contending looks like. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not a physical fight, okay? It's not, a, it's not a, a political battle. He goes on to talk about 
prayer and showing mercy to people. And so we'll talk about that in the future, but, but for now, let me say this. When we read these passages, we looking to ourselves and, and asking ourselves, am I, even maybe in smaller ways, am I justifying my sin and just saying, well, God, God's going to forgive it, so it's, it's not really worth fighting you know, I, I read through this passage and I thought, man, I grumble far too much. I do. And grumbling is a deadly sin. Because people died in the wilderness because they grumbled against the Lord. I need Christ to die in my place for my grumbling because it dishonors God. I should be grateful to God for all that He's done for me. Or would you be tempted... Were a lustful look to engage in the passions of the flesh, would you be tempted to be boastful or presumptuous or slanderous or have a rebel spirit toward authority? Brothers and sisters, we need to repent of these sins and not excuse them, not explain them away, but to humbly confess and repent and ask God for His grace, not simply to forgive us, but also for His grace to transform us, to make us more like Christ, to help us to live more faithfully as His servants in our world. See, distorting grace and denying God in pursuit of debauchery has damning consequences. I think Jude's made that abundantly clear. But God is gracious to help us transform us, as Jude says near the end, to keep us from stumbling. He's able to help you, to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. So let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. O oh Lord, may we not be slack in our passion for serving You, our Master, for contending for the faith, fighting our own sin, being watchful over our own lives and our own doctrine, not distorting Your grace, which is attained for us through the shed blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Master who has bought us with His own blood. So God, we pray that You would help us to walk in humble repentance, to live lives of devoted service to You, to be watchful, and to look out for those around us to ensure that they are not self-deceived or deceiving others and leading them toward destruction. Help us, Lord, to be faithful servants of you in that regard as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Going to close with the hymn number 353, O Church, Arise. Let's sing, O Church, Arise together, number 353 in your hymn books. Mm-hmm.